Good morning, everyone. I'm Jennifer. I'm one of the associate pastors here. For those of you that I haven't met, welcome to White Rock Baptist today. As was mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about the theme of hope. And I know there's a lot of things that all of us are hoping for. It's December. Can you believe it? December the 1st, today. I am not ready. And there is so much going to be going on. If you wanted to be busy every night of the week from now until Christmas, you probably could be with all the things happening both in our church and out in the community. Um, On December the 13th, as well as the musical, there's also Friday Friendship for those of you who are over 55, and that's always a great time when we have our Christmas lunch together and hear some wonderful music, and we always have a joke at Friday Friendship. So actually, I'm going to tell a joke, and some of you may remember it from a couple years ago, but we'll see. So two young boys were visiting their grandparents for the holidays. At bedtime a few days before Christmas, they knelt beside their beds to say their prayers, when the youngest one began praying at the top of his lungs. I pray you will bring me a puppy to take care of and be my best friend, but if if that's not okay, then I pray for an Xbox, and I pray for a new Lego set. His older brother leaned over and nudged the younger brother and said, Why are you shouting your prayers? God isn't deaf. To which the little brother replied, No, but Grandma is. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. So kids have no problem telling us what they're hoping for, do they? We get some long lists sometimes. They're very honest. And with adults, I think it can be a little bit harder. We think we're supposed to have um, more noble aspirations. And so we're not always honest even with ourselves about what we're actually hoping for at Christmas. But I want us to do our best for a minute to be completely honest. If I said to you, let's say, at the potluck later... What are you hoping for this month? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I want us to try and think for a moment in in concrete and realistic terms of where we put our hope during Advent. Not where we think our hope should be. We'll get to that in a minute. But what are we actually looking forward to? What are we hoping for right now when we think of Christmas? Based on my own experience, I can make some guesses about what you may have thought of. You might hope for a break, for a rest and refreshment and time off of work. You might hope to taste a particular family recipe that's only ever made at Christmas. In our family, it's gingerbread cookies. You might hope that you'll receive a particular gift that you've been wanting, or you may be looking forward to seeing your loved one's face as they open something that you have put away for them. You might hope to feel some peace and nostalgia when you go looking at Christmas lights and decorating your Christmas tree. Most of you have already done that, by the way. I see all these lights up and Christmas trees decorated. I haven't gotten there yet, but this afternoon, probably. It is December, after all. But if this is all we're hoping for, that that free time and good food and gifts and some warm, fuzzy feelings, then we know that's that's really not going to fill up our souls for very long, is it? It It's no wonder that if if that's where we put our hope, then it's no wonder we can feel hopeless and discouraged at Christmas because these things are pleasant, but once they're consumed, they're gone. Family lasts a lot longer. Our culture will tell you that family is everything, that the best part of Christmas is the joy of being with your family and the hope of reconnecting with family members that you haven't seen the rest of the year. And that is a nice idea. 
I think that's partly true, but I kind of wonder if the people who make all the really sappy Christmas commercials, if they have ever met a real family before. Um, Because once again, let's be honest, family gatherings are not always all they're cracked up to be. Sometimes there are some personality conflicts. There might be some differences of opinion, strong ones. This is why we don't talk politics at uh, holiday gatherings, right? There might be some unforgiveness, things that happened years ago and people don't talk about it. There might be some expectations, there might be moodiness or boredom or fake politeness with each other. So a family is a wonderful thing, it is, but it's not a good source of hope. In fact, our family members can be our biggest stressors during the holidays. And in particular, if your family is one that's going to look around the Christmas dinner table and feel the pain of someone missing who will never sit there again, then you might actually feel quite hopeless. Your only hope might be just that you can make it through the holidays without a breakdown. If you're feeling that way, I hope you'll join us for a blue Christmas service that's specially designed for those who are grieving at Christmas. But if I asked the kids in Sunday school where our hope should be at Christmas, what would they say? Jesus, of course, the universal Sunday school answer. Jesus is the hope of the world. And some of them, the older kids, might even be able to tell me the story of how the Israelites waited and waited for centuries for a Messiah who would come and save them. And at long last, that hope was fulfilled. Jesus came, the Son of God, in the form of a little human baby, helpless, born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up, and he taught about the kingdom of God, and he was betrayed and crucified, but he rose again, and he did all of that so we could be saved from our sins. So our hope is that Jesus will save us. We believe all of that, absolutely. Jesus does save us. He gives us a new spiritual birth, and a new relationship with God that is based solely on faith in him and not on anything good that we can do. But how do we really experience and nurture that kind of hope in our day-to-day living? Are we supposed to now behave like all of our hopes have been fulfilled? Do we celebrate at Christmas that since Jesus has come, we have nothing left to hope for? I think sometimes our Advent calendars and activities can give us that kind of impression. For years, I did an Advent reading with my kids every night during the month of December, and it went chronologically through all the highlights of Scripture, from creation to the fall to Abraham to Moses and the Exodus, and then the promised land and the kings and the judges and the exile and the return, and it all culminated on December 24th with the birth of Jesus. So it was a great way to set the story of Christmas in a bigger context, and I'm glad we did it. But I always felt like December 25th was a little anticlimactic after all that. The story just sort of stops, and you get the sense that you've been on this long journey, and now you get to celebrate this wonderful, miraculous birth of our Savior. And then what? Life goes on, right? There's still hard work to do. There's still not enough money, especially in January. There's still broken relationships in our lives. There's still people who are sick. There's maybe only a few days left until we go back to the regular grind, and we can't pretend that all of our hopes and dreams for our lives and for the whole world have been fully realized in Jesus' birth. All we would have to do is watch the news on December 26th 
to realize the world is a bit of a mess. And we are still waiting in hope for something big. We have received something wonderful in the birth of Jesus. He gave us the first taste of God's kingdom on earth, but we're still waiting to see that in its fullness. We're no longer waiting for a savior, but we're waiting for him to come back in power and to set things right in our world. And Advent is the season that we reflect on that. So even though we know Jesus' name now, unlike the ancient Israelites, they, they waited for some nameless Messiah to come and help them. We now know who Jesus is, and we have a relationship with him, but we're still waiting for him to act like the king of the universe that we believe he is. And so we, have to, we cry out, how long, O oh Lord, until you permanently fix this mess that we call life on earth? Now, the Apostle Paul knew that we would feel like that sometimes, and he probably felt like that sometimes, and that's why God inspired him to write Romans 8, verses 18 to 30, and that is our text this morning. If you have a Bible or an iPhone or somewhere you want to look up this passage, please do that now. Romans 8, and it'll be on screen as well. Romans 8, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I think this is probably the most hopeful passage in all of scripture. But in some ways I feel like I am the last person here who should be preaching about hope. I've, as many of you know, I've struggled with depression all of my adult life. And maybe you could guess that from the introduction to my sermon. I tend to see the negative things first. And there was a time in my life that I lost hope so much that I wanted to die. And, and I never lost faith in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I prayed to him desperately. I knew that I was saved from my sins and that I would spend eternity with God. But I lost hope 
for this life, that there was any point to my life in particular, and I felt everyone would be better off without me. And my daily life felt so overwhelming, I just didn't feel like I could go on. And I still struggle with those feelings sometimes. If you do, I would love to talk with you and share with you some of the things that have helped me through. But as I've meditated on Romans 8 this week, I've realized maybe I am qualified to preach about hope, not in spite of, but because of the fact that sometimes I lose it and I have to find it again. And I've, when I read Romans, I don't just see a hopeful description of the future, but I actually see some principles for recovering hope when it's gone astray. And so I want to share those with you. But first, I think we need to define a couple of terms. So in the biblical sense of the words, what's the difference between hope and faith? They're often used together. But hope is actually more than just a wish for something. In the Bible, hope is a fervent desire and a confident expectation that what God has promised for the future will happen. And then when a hope is fulfilled, it ends. So when Jesus comes again, there will be no more hope because we will have everything that we could hope for. Hope is by nature a temporary virtue. But faith is different. Faith is a conviction that is acted upon today. So it's not just an intellectual belief, but it's a trust in God that influences how we behave. And in Hebrews 11.1, I'm sure you've heard this verse, it defines faith. It says it's confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Did you notice hope is actually in the definition of faith? Confidence in what we hope for. And so hope is the part of faith that is looking to the future. Faith can also look to the past or the present, right? Because we have faith that God created the world. <clears throat> we have faith that Jesus lived and that he taught what it says he taught in scripture. We can have faith that God is with us right now in the present. But as John Piper says, hope is faith in the future tense. And sometimes, too often, we can have faith in the past or faith in the present without hope for the future. And when that happens, we need to recover our hope. So these are some things that I notice. Four, four principles for recovering hope that I see in Romans 8. The first one is that we can be honest. Things are not as they should be. Sometimes we feel we can't admit that because we're supposed to be grateful, but we can be grateful and admit that things are not as they should be in the world. We're never going to find true hope through denial or through a shallow optimism that says, everything is fine, everything will be okay. That's, that's not hope. We first have to recognize the reality of our brokenness. It's okay to admit when things are bad. That's what Paul did at the beginning of this passage. He says, we are suffering right now. Our present sufferings exist. And the whole creation is waiting. It's frustrated. It's in bondage to decay, he said, to this cycle of, of death and decomposition. The whole, you, it's all of creation. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So all is not right with the world. It's been affected by the sin of humanity. And then he says, we also are groaning in pain, even though we have Jesus. Paul makes it clear he's talking about Christians because he says, we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. So I think there's actually a longing in us that is awakened when we become Christians, and it never goes away during this life. We long to see Jesus face to face. We long to see justice and peace in the world, the way it was described for us in Isaiah 11 that the girls read this morning. We long for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and to see in reality all the promises of God come true. We get pretty sick and tired of dealing with sin, the sin all around us, the sin in us. We get tired of our broken relationships and broken systems and a broken environment. We know this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not how God designed it to be, and so we can never really accept it. We're longing for shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace or wholeness. So when we've realized that our life doesn't measure up to that, then what do we do? How do we find hope? Well, number two, we remember God's promise that it will not always be this way. The picture that Paul paints for us in Romans 8 is that something so beautiful and so wonderful is coming that all of the sufferings of humanity up to this point can't even begin to compare with it. He talks about the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about resurrection. We've been promised that someday all of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation will receive a new and imperishable body, just like Christ did when he rose from the grave. And we'll also be like Christ in our character. We'll have no more struggles with sin, no more imperfections, no more pain, no more death. The image of God, it says in Genesis, that we were all made in the image of God, and that will someday be displayed perfectly in us, and will no longer be marred by our sinful nature. And then it says all of heaven and earth will be made new as well. The kingdom of God will actually come to earth in visible reality, and the promises of paradise will be fulfilled. So Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is our hope. And we don't think about this vision of the future enough, I don't think. We read this passage at funerals, not too often otherwise. But why not? This is our hope. As Christians, not just that our souls will go to heaven when we die, but that on the day of judgment we will be resurrected and we will receive a new and indestructible and perfect body and we'll live together with God and all his people forever in a new creation. Heaven and earth come together as one. If you'd like to study this further, I would recommend to you the book Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And this is a quote from that book. Wright says... Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven remains one of the most powerful and revolutionary sentences we can ever say. 
As I see it, the prayer was powerfully answered at the first Easter and will finally be answered fully when heaven and earth are joined in the new Jerusalem. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. So what he's saying is that when we contemplate the resurrected Christ, we get a glimpse of what our own future will hold. And we don't know when this will take place. It could be tomorrow and it could be thousands of years from now. Scripture says no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. So then what do we do in the meantime? Well, this is number three. We need to wait patiently and take stock of what we already have. So Paul writes in verses 23 to 25, We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. When I first read this scripture, the question that stuck in my mind and that keeps rolling around is, who hopes for what they already have? And I, actually, I think we do. I think I do. Far too often. We're, we're not that smart, actually. We get discouraged. We lose hope because we don't realize what we already have. And it's true that things are not as they should be yet. But they are a whole lot better than they used to be. If you think back to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, we need to think about what their life would have been like Waiting and waiting and waiting, not just for the promised land, but then for a Messiah to come. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have full and complete assurance of forgiveness. They had to go and make sacrifices. Every time they made a mistake, they had to go and do it again. And they became unclean from doing things that were just ordinary human life. And they had to go and get cleansed. And, you know, there was... No permanent peace with God. It was this constant worrying and trying to make it right again. And yet we have complete and full forgiveness. We have grace instead of the law. And we have the freedom to pray and worship God at any time, anywhere. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to do things in a certain way. And best of all, we have the Holy Spirit now within us to guide us and comfort us and empower us. We have the complete Bible that we can read and learn and that encourages us. And all of these things they didn't have. You know, if we can just imagine all that Jesus has bought for us with his own blood, then we can realize how they waited and waited and waited for that hope to be fulfilled. And now that we're still waiting for other things, We can wait patiently because we know he will fulfill our hopes in the future. But back to that question, who hopes for what they already have? I think we should be clear that we aren't hoping for Jesus because we already have Jesus. He lives within us, within you, the church, the body of Christ. So what we hope for now is that when he comes again, there will be that final destruction of sin and death There will be the resurrection of his people, and all of us will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be like him. So we hope for the glory of God's kingdom come. But we do have Jesus now, and he is enough to sustain us. So when we're losing hope, we can remind ourselves 
We have Jesus with us now, and he is going to help us. He will enable us to wait patiently for the rest. And the fourth principle of recovering our hope is that we rely on the Holy Spirit because he is working for our good. So at the end of this text, uh, verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And his purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so I am so encouraged by this, that we can rely on the Holy Spirit even in our prayers, that he prays on our behalf when we don't know what to ask for. And not only that, but he is actively at work using everything, all of our circumstances, both good and bad, he's using them for our good to make us more like Christ. The plan has been laid out, and we are moving steadily towards the goal of new creation. And nothing will be able to stop God from accomplishing his plan. So Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So after we've admitted that things are not as they should be, and we've remembered the promise of God that he will fix it, and we've counted all of the blessings that Jesus has bought for us with his own life, including his own presence with us through the Holy Spirit, then we rely on the Holy Spirit to complete his work. Our job then is just to praise God and to be witnesses to what he's done. So we don't have to fix the world or our families or even ourselves. We can just trust that God is working on it. And it is such a relief not to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and to put ourselves back in proper perspective. And so that means we can put our Christmas celebrations in their proper perspective as well. We don't need to expect Christmas to fulfill all our hopes. Our hope is not in the day itself, or in the food, or in the family gatherings. We know it's not going to be a perfect celebration, and for now that's okay. Things are not exactly as they should be, but it won't always be this way. Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection are the foreshadowing of what's going to come. And he is our saving grace in the meantime. We can wait patiently for God to set everything right once and for all because we have Jesus with us and we have that confident hope that the Holy Spirit will bring God's perfect plan to completion at the right time. Let me leave you with just one final thought. I came across an acronym for hope this week that I had never heard before. Maybe you have. It's hold on, pain ends. And I think that's a perfect summary of what I've been trying to say. That as we move to communion in a few minutes, we can remember how Jesus held on through his betrayal and his crucifixion because he knew that pain would end and that something much, much better was coming. And in Hebrews 12, it says, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is our model. And if he could hold on to the hope of the perfect joy he would have through all that he went through, then he can certainly help us to hold on to hope as well. And as we share in communion, we can remember that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We, this is going somewhere. We're not just looking back to the past. We're looking forward to when he will come again. And his coming again is the hope for which we were saved. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you that you are our hope and you can help us to recover our hope when we seem to get discouraged by the things of life. Lord, I pray that for each person here, Lord, as they look forward to the various things that will happen during this Christmas season, that most of all, Lord, you would help us to realize how much greater is the hope of you coming again, of your kingdom on earth, of even ourselves being purified and resurrected and made into your image. Lord, may we put our hope in those things and not in lesser things that will never satisfy. Lord, I pray especially that as we take the bread and the juice and remember your death, that we will not only look backwards, Lord, but that we will be confident in our hope that you will come again. You fulfilled the hopes of the Israelites for a Messiah. You will fulfill our hopes for you to come back in power and to rule as king over our entire world. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us these promises to hang on to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.